in the film The Water Diviner, Russell Crowe plays an Australian farmer named Joshua Connor who allows his three sons to enlist in the, the Australian New Zealand Army Corps during the First World War. All three of his sons together go and fight at the Battle of Gallipoli, and all three of them end up going missing in action and presumed dead. The movie begins four years after their disappearance. Connor's wife couldn't handle the loss, and so she drowns herself early in the movie, and Connie buries his wife, promising at her gravesite that he will track down their three sons and bury them right next to her. As a water diviner, which is somebody who in an arid uh, uh, context uh, uh, finds hidden sources of water, Connor possesses an innate ability to sense the unsensible, and he applies this sixth sense to the problem of locating his three boys. After a three-month journey, he arrives in Constantinople, now Istanbul, and from there he bribes a fishing boat captain to transport him to Gallipoli. And against the wishes of the British Army who were there trying to find and properly bury all the war dead. But possessing nothing but his eldest son's diary and a knowledge of their date of disappearance, Connor is convinced that he can find them. One Turkish officer who was present at the battle, Major Isan, is the only one who takes Connor seriously. We've got a picture here of conversation that happens. The British officer in charge is already planned for a supply ship to take Connor back to Istanbul, and he's content in the meantime to see him rot on the beach. But the scene unfolds, and Major Isan asks the British officer why he won't help Connor search for his boys. And the officer quips that he can't go around helping every father who, who, who won't stay put and let the authorities handle the matter. And Major Isan replies, Yes, but he is the only father who came looking for his sons. Thank you. This Christmas season, we're meditating on a God who came looking for his sons. The Old Testament calls him an everlasting father. The only God who gave up everything to come and find his lost children to bring us home. We're going to be looking at the words of the Apostle Paul, St. Paul's ancient description of Jesus in his letter to the Christians at Colossae. He wrote it around the year 60 AD, likely while imprisoned in Rome because of his faith in Jesus. This is the first chapter of the epistle to the Colossians, beginning in verse 15, the word of our God. He, that is Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him, that is Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical bo- by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. To some of you, today might be New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve. But on the Christian calendar, it is far more importantly the seventh day of Christmas. Who can tell me, kids, how can, who can tell me how many days there are in Christmas? Come on, you got it. Yell it out. Yeah, Twelve. Who can sing the song from memory? Christmas tide is a season that begins on Christmas Day, and, and of course it used to be that you get small presents for, for 12 days instead of big presents for one. Um, but what was in the song the gift given on the seventh day? Anybody remember it? Yeah, we've got an infographic here. Uh, number seven, seven swans a-swimming. Um, and that 12-day celebration was never intended to be Jesus' birthday. The Christians never knew the date of Christ's birth. They could surmise it somewhat in a ballpark sense based on various things, but, but, but really we don't know. But instead, what it is is this celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, um, and so we're going to look at today's passage as we look at it. Um, we have this question of what do we see here? And firstly, we see the simple fact that for Jesus' earliest followers, they believed that they were called to worship him as their God. Um, the language here from St. Paul is very clear. This is from, you know, 25 years after the resurrection of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, which we think that means order of birth. That's not the case. You know, God the Son was not born. He's eternally begotten. But by firstborn, within a first century Jewish context, or even a Roman context, the firstborn was the heir, the one equal to the Father, the one who inherits everything. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, the inheritor of everything. And for by him all things were created. You know, when, when, when God in Genesis spoke and said, let there be light, that word coming out from him, the word of God, is what through whom God created all things, through the Son. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that's angels, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, by God the Son, and for him. All things created for the glory of Jesus Christ, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is before all things, Paul writes, and in him all things hold together, which is just an incredible image. You know, Jonathan Edwards spoke of this when he, when he said, uh, when he, he didn't use this term, but it's, it's like in music where, you know, I, I had all of four years of violin in elementary school, which made me an expert in these things. 
but, um, but you can get more nuance from, from Dr. Harris. But, um, you know, in staccato, you know, it's this momentary boop. You know, you play the, your note, boop, 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 and it's over, just boop, and it's done. And we tend to think that that's how God created the world. But this is saying, in Jesus, in God the Son, all things hold together. It's not a staccato, it's a legato, where you, you hold the note, boop, meaning it's what Edwards called the God's continual act of creation, that, that God is continually willing the universe to exist, and in Jesus it is all consisting, it is all holding together, that, that moment by moment He continues to will us to be. And this is what Jesus had been telling his followers throughout his earthly ministry. He, he made implicit claims that any Jew in the first century would have understood exactly what he was saying. You know, he claimed to do things that only God could do. He said, I have authority to forgive sins against God. Well, the Pharisees understood that. Well, nobody has authority to do that but God alone. Bingo. He claimed Jesus to be the judge of humanity at the last day. That's God's job. He can't claim to be able to grant eternal life, which only God could do. Jesus said, I am greater than God's temple. God's temple is the house in which God dwells with His people. And what could be more, more, more great than God's house but only one thing, which is God Himself? Jesus identified his own kingdom as God's kingdom. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, he tells us to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the one name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, bringing all three persons up to a point of equality in deity and honor. And then Jesus keeps letting people worship him, which is weird because when John the Apostle came across a great and glorious angel in the book of Revelation, in his apocalypse. He bowed down before the angel, and the angel rebuked him and said, do not do this evil thing. You know, I am but a creature too and but a servant of God because it's wrong to worship anything other than God, and yet the Magi came in Matthew 2 and worshiped Jesus. In Matthew 14, Jesus walks on water and they worship him. In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples gather on the mountain with him and it says that they worshiped him. He welcomed it. He even identified himself as the Son of Man in Daniel's vision of heaven. Um, we've got a picture, if you're not familiar with that vision in Daniel. This is not Rembrandt. Um, it's the best I could find, but I'll read it to you. In my vision at night I looked, this is Daniel, hundreds of years earlier, and there before me was one like a son of man, like a human, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Did you catch all of that? 
Now, this ain't Botticelli, but it's a pretty powerful picture. One that's human, but more than human, who has glory, the glory of God, who has sovereign power, who's going to rule the cosmos for all eternity, and that all the nations are going to bow down and worship him. When Jesus said he was the Son of God, he was saying something important. But when he said he was the Son of Man, he was referencing this vision, saying, I am the God-man. I am the one who will rule for all eternity, and all the nations will bow before me the Son of Man. Thank you. This is what the early followers of Jesus all taught us. John in his gospel says that the Word, which he identifies as having become flesh later, was with God and was God in the beginning. The author to Hebrews refers to God's Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. There's your continual creation, your legato, sustaining all things, moment by moment, by his powerful word. The simple fact is that Jesus' early followers universally worshipped him as God. But that's not the miracle of Christmas. The miracle of Christmas is the far more uncomfortable fact that Jesus was fully human. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. One of the earliest heresies of the church was the heresy of docetism, a heresy that denied not Jesus' divinity but his humanity. Um, and I'm convinced that very many of us today, even though we haven't, you know, steeped like a, like a tea bag in a boiling cauldron of Neoplatonism for 500 years like they had, nevertheless, I'm convinced that that docetism is still alive and well. It teaches that Jesus was something of a phantom. He was God, but he didn't actually take on human flesh, not a deteriorating physical body like us, not really. Indeed, the Apostle John was likely uh, uh, referencing some of those early heretics in 1 John 4 when he says that every spirit that acknowledges Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. This was the real miracle. God became a human being. He united himself to our human nature. We read here of Christ's physical body. We read here of his blood shed on the cross, the blood of God. First, in John 1, he became flesh. I mean, I want you to think about flesh for, for a moment. Um, I want you to imagine that you're standing at the meat counter inside Straub's, which for those of you who don't know is the high-end grocer in St. Louis. And we've got a picture there. It's really lovely. Look at the Kobe burgers. That's, that's probably not recent because they were $4.99 and they're probably $5.99 now. But um, think about flesh. That's flesh. Uh, it's a very nice pile of flesh. I mean, we're talking USDA prime steaks. You can't even buy prime at Deerberg's, uh, let alone at Schnucks. It's, it's the steaks that are so perfectly marbled that every little sliver of fat liquefies as it heats and creates this incredibly juicy and flavorful steak. Uh, think of those Saratoga ribeyes with all the fat pockets removed and wrapped with twine to form a perfect hockey puck of flesh. We're talking about big, ginormous cowboy-cut ribeyes that Fred Flintstone would have been carrying in the back of his vehicle. We're talking about perfectly clean chicken breasts with no fat or cartilage that have been pre-flattened for you for your chicken scallopini. It's actually called paillard. It's a technique. 
Picture ground veal that you buy by the pound, the preformed half-pound Kobe beef burger patties, and the filet mignon wrapped in bacon, flesh. The word became meat and dwelt among us. God became meat, flesh. Think about that. Chew over that <laughs> for a moment. See if it disturbs you. That's good for the flesh. Um, it means, if we think about the incarnation of the Son of God, it means that God the Son had body odor for you. Not that the second person of the Trinity emitted the smell, but the human nature, including the human body to whom he was united, was a body like any other. There's a lot of humiliation that goes into a human body. Bodies can be kind of gross. Those of you who are adults act like it isn't so. You keep a straight face. But you kids know all the funny sounds that human bodies can make, and you still know it's funny. Bodies take in food and water, and in return, bodies produce fingernails and toenails and phlegm and that crusty stuff in your eyes in the morning and urine and blood and earwax and bile and skin cells that die and flake off and strings of protein that we call hair and other things we need not discuss. Hebrews says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Consider what it means that God became human to virtually limit, to voluntarily limit himself to become an embryo or a fetus, to have his diaper changed, to go through puberty, to live under all the limitations of the human body. It leaves us asking so many questions that we may not have answers to. And to do this is a humiliating thing, becoming like us in our human nature in order to free us. The body though a good creation of God is hardly a noble container for the fullness of God. You know, all the more so after our expulsion from Eden when our bodies are decaying. Nevertheless, God united himself to human nature, body and all. Jesus had to let Mary change his diaper. He went through puberty. He was susceptible to disease. He was capable of dying and did. We read here that Jesus existed for a time, quote, among the dead, Jesus got hungry when he fasted in Matthew 4. He became thirsty in John 19. His brothers who grew up with him had a trouble, tr troubling time accepting him as the Jewish Messiah because he was just such a normal person in John chapter 4. All that, you know, it, also that he might resurrect our bodies on the last day, making him the firstborn among the dead. Not only did God have body odor for you, but he also had emotional problems for you. Don't think that God incarnate was some impersonal force, that stoic, distant, you know, whispering voice from the old Hollywood movies. No, the real Jesus entered into close relationships with other people. He loved them deeply. He suffered when they suffered. I mean, you look at, at John being the disciple Jesus loved in John 13. That meant he had a special connection there. Uh, implying a companionship that was stronger than he had with the other disciples. We read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus in John 11. And the moment that Jesus experienced deep sorrow when his loved ones suffered loss. This is more than just a generic love for all of humanity. Jesus became deeply stirred as an incarnate human. When Lazarus died, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled in John 11, even weeping at the sight of his dead friend. 
He experienced joy in John 15, anger in Mark 3, surprise in Luke 7 and Mark 6. In Gethsemane, Jesus experienced the kind of emotional turmoil that left him dreading being alone in Mark 14. The Bible says he experienced temptation as we do, but without the sin, taking on all of our humanity so he could redeem all of our humanity. And since he was God, this means God the Son incarnate experienced all of this for us. And that brings us the comforting knowledge that Jesus is still divine and he's still human. The incarnation was permanent. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead with a physical glorified body. Then he ascended to heaven at the right hand of the Father. You know, we, we see, you know, a God who took on body odor, emotional problems, school, temptation. Incarnation, though, was permanent. God had certainly appeared to his people throughout history as, as a burning bush before Moses, as a cloud and a fire through the wilderness. And yet, those are theophanies, uh, manifestations of God, but those were all temporary. The incarnation was permanent. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, Scripture says, right now interceding for us. Jesus continues to this day to stand at the Father's throne. He is still a man, according to Acts 17. According to, you know, 2 Timothy 2 as well, he is still very much human. He is still embodied, albeit a man who is ascended in glory to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is what our Muslim neighbors have the most trouble with. If you ask a typical Muslim, what's the the thing that would make them most unwilling to consider Christianity? It's the notion that, that God is being so lowered and humiliated as to become human. And that seems so disrespectful to them, so dishonoring that God would have to do that. And yet I remember um, one person I knew, he, he was discussing this with, with a Muslim friend of his, and she, uh, she said, yeah, I could never worship a God like that. And yet he asked her a question. He said, if your child was drowning in a river, would you dive into the river to rescue your child, or would you call for someone else to do that? She said, I would dive in the river myself. He said, that's the incarnation of the Son of God, that God dove in himself to rescue us, even though it was humiliating. Christmas is a celebration of this most unlikely miracle in the history of the universe that God shared in their humanity, we read, like them in every way, fully human in every way. God became one of us. And the permanence is a huge comfort for followers of Jesus because the incarnate body of Jesus at the right hand of the Father in the New Testament is presented as the locus of our salvation, the location of our salvation. Where is your salvation? Is it the right hand of the Father in Jesus Christ to whom I am united? Um, You know, don't think the cross alone secured our salvation. God became man so that God's image in us might be restored in our body and in our soul. Christmas is, 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 is more than presence and mistletoe. It's about the exaltation of our humanity through the humiliation of the Son's deity. St. Peter says that we have become partakers of the divine nature through God's precious promises. Not that we become gods, but we become spiritually united to God in Christ where God and man are joined. I have a a diagram here. Um, Most diagrams of the incarnation are heretical. 
and most diagrams of the Trinity are heretical, and this I call Greg's less heretical salvation diagram. Uh, my less heretical salvation diagram has, you know, the Godhead in green, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equal in glory and honor. And then you've got Jesus, who's the red circle, um, Jesus, God the Son, incarnate with human nature, and you see our human nature, which in union with the Son is therefore also in union with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And so, thinking of this, St. Paul says in Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The unity of our souls and bodies united in our human nature with God the Son in His divine nature, bringing us in union with Jesus Christ, a phrase that's used 174 times in the New Testament in one form or another, and that's mostly Paul's letters. In union with Christ, we therefore have union with the Godhead. And friends, that is a union that no one can take from you if you have been united to Jesus. Um, it was William Tyndale who said to those who follow Jesus, he said, this means that neither, that you cannot be damned unless Christ is damned with you, and Christ cannot be saved unless you are saved with him. You were, you were webbed together so tightly in such a powerful bond. Thank you. Because your salvation is in Jesus, whose incarnate human body is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven at this moment, interceding for you. His incarnate human body is the locus of our salvation where our human nature meets His divine nature in the unity of the Holy Trinity of love. For God was pleased, we read, to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. This means our prayers are received through the mediation of one who is fully human and God. God will always seem distant to you until you grapple with the fact that we pray with the mediation of a human who is God to a God who is united forever to our humanity. Your humanness, your human nature is redeemed by being the same human nature that Christ took up in himself and that now stands at the right hand of God the Father, a permanent presence of our human nature at the throne room of heaven. We read that Jesus made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now you have been, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. And so long as you're trusting in Jesus, friends, you are, according to the Word of God, and I quote, without blemish and free from accusation. So why would God do this? Because God loved you enough to become one of us in order to save us. I remember listening to a talk given by Ard Lewis. Ard Lewis is a, a 
we have a policy that the loudest children in the church have to be the pastor's children because it makes all of you other parents feel relaxed. So understand this is a policy. Um, it's a matter of principle to make everybody feel comfortable. But I was listening to a talk by, by Ard Lewis, who's professor of theoretical physics at the University of Oxford, um, where he leads an interdisciplinary research group studying problems on the border between chemistry, physics, and biology. And he's also a follower of Jesus. And I remember hearing him talk about um, the, this fish. We've got a picture of a fish. Um, cutest fish on the planet. In grad school, he uh, working on his postdoc, he, he had this, this fish in his tank, and he loved this fish, and he could spend hours just watching this little fish play and swim around and go down into the little, you know, greenery and whatnot. He loved this fish, and yet every time he would go to feed the fish, he'd walk up to the fish tank and drop the food in, and the fish, fish would go, Wah! and run and hide in the bottom corner, completely freaked out. And he was thinking... Uh, this is what happens when you're a professor of, theological, or of theoretical physics at Oxford leading an interdisciplinary research group studying problems on the border between chemistry, physics, and biology. But he was thinking, what could I do to help this fish know how much I love it? And it doesn't have to run away. And it doesn't have to hide. And he began thinking at that intersection of biology and whatnot. If there was a way I could become a fish and dive into the fish tank and be there with the fish, then it could know that I truly love it in a way that only a fish could understand. And then it dawned on him, that is the incarnation of the Son of God who became a fish and dove into the fish tank. He became a man and dove into this filthy world of human sin, misery, and betrayal. And he did it because he wanted us to experience his love. Bono, the, the lead singer with U2, was returning to Dublin after a long tour, of, and, and he attended a Christmas Eve service, and at some point during that service, Bono says he grasped the truth at the heart of the Christmas story that in Jesus, God became a human being. And with tears streaming down his face, Bono said, the idea that God if there is a force of love and logic in the universe that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough that it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw. A child, I just thought, wow, just the poetry. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. That was the love of God that became human and lived and died and rose and ascended and is sitting in session at the right hand of the Father interceding for us now. can picture a child on Christmas morning tiptoeing down the staircase into the living room and he sees the tree and he sees 
all of these presents, and he sees stockings, and he sees goodies, and candy, and, 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 and gingerbread, and candy cane, and cakes, and all sorts of stuff spread out. And as he's seeing these gifts, his eyes are growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with longing, with desire, with wonder and amazement. Friends, Scripture says that you are the desired of God, you who follow Jesus. And those eyes, when you picture the eyes of God looking upon you, Those are the eyes that look upon you with so much longing and love and desire. That's Christmas. He who became human in order to seek us out and bring us home. A God who dove into the fish tank so that we fish could know his love. A God who was driven by his love to come looking for us, his people. Dorothy Sayers. Uh, wrote a series of detective novels focused on the fictional character Lord Peter Whimsey. We have a photo of that um, old cover. And one author explains that, that Sayers' creation, Whimsey, was he was an aristocratic detective from the 1930s. He solved all kinds of crimes, and she wrote a whole series of stories about Lord Peter. And then about halfway through her, her, her Whimsey detective series, a woman character suddenly shows up in the novels. Sayers' new character is named Harriet Vane, a female mystery writer and one of the very first women to graduate from Oxford. Harriet and Peter fall in love within the story. Until that point in the series, Whimsy had been an unhappy, broken bachelor until Harriet Vane shows up and her love starts to heal his broken soul. What's interesting, though, is that Dorothy Sayers herself, like her fictional creation, Harriet, was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Like Harriet Vane, Dorothy Sayers was a writer of mystery novels. Dorothy Sayers looked at her character that she had created, Lord Peter Whimsey, and she saw that he needed someone to help him out. So who did she put in there, in the story, in the detective novels, halfway through? But a detective, a novelist, A woman, one of the first women to go through Oxford. Who was that? She put herself in her own stories. She looked into the world that she had created, and she fell in love with the chief character, Peter Whimsey. And so she wrote herself into the story so that she could heal him. That is the story of the Son of God. He who wrote the story, seeing us, writing himself into the story in order that he might heal us. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God, the miracle of Christmas, that love came looking, love came, and this, you know, Father of mercies was the only Father who came looking, and he came looking for you, the author of history, writing himself into his own story in order to be the salvation that his much-loved children required. Let's... Let's pray.